0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back once again to the Intervals podcast. We are a public humanities initiative of the Organization of American Historians, and I'm Christopher Brick here on behalf of the OAH Committee on Marketing and Communications. And today I'm here as well to welcome our 10th guest lecturer, Dr. Farina King, who will be joining us today from Northeastern State University in Tulekwa, Oklahoma, where she's currently and Associate Professor of History. And it being the 10th episode of the series, I'll point out really quickly that this is also the midpoint of this first season on the history of public health and epidemic disease. So for all of those of you who have continued tuning in, I want to thank you for joining us each week to welcome you to the middle of the series and to invite your continued feedback, comments, and questions They've all been very helpful, and the dialogue with each of you, the audience, is one of the most rewarding parts of the work I've found. So please keep reaching out as well. Our contact info is in the episode notes, um, and I'm also pretty easy to find on Twitter or at at seabrickatgw.edu if you do the tweet or email thing. As for our guest lecturer today, Dr. Farina King will highlight Dina histories of disease and healing from the 19th century to the COVID-19 era, which traces her own family and father's lived experiences as a Diné physician who has worked for the Indian Health Service and Navajo Healthcare for decades to the present during the COVID-19 outbreaks. I don't want to steal any more of Farina's thunder, but that's just a sense of some of the experience she relates and the manner by which she relates it. We've talked a bit in this podcast about sources, the pieces of information that historians harvest, as well as the methods we apply to interpret them, the product of which is one of the things that people mean when they talk about history or use it to describe something. The thing that makes Farina's talk such an intriguing and exciting listen for me is the sources that she draws upon, as well as the use of techniques like memory keeping and collective storytelling that bear relationship to her own life story. It's quite wonderful effect. She is certainly her own best messenger. Uh, and this is not just a fantastic lesson, but also a phenomenal contribution to scholarship. So you have every reason to feel as grateful to NEH as I do for helping to make this possible. And with that, I'm going to hand it off to Dr. Farina King on Dina Doctor Histories.
1: Yat e hello. My name is Farina King. I will introduce myself in Diné Bizaad, the Navajo language, for my kin to know me and our relations. Shee bilagana nishle do kiaani bashishchin bilagana dashache do sinajini dashanale tonones dize shdizche shee Washington De nasha ad e telequade shechan. Ad a Northeastern State University De nash, nish, Ba Ota Akotego Atsa I am of white English American settler descent and born for the towering house clan of the Dene, which is what we Navajos call ourselves. My maternal grandfather was English American, and my paternal grandfather was of the Black Streaked Woods People Clan. I was born in Tuba City in the Navajo Nation. Because my father worked for the Indian Health Service, IHS, our family moved and lived in different places throughout the United States. I was raised mostly in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area in the state of Maryland since my family went there for my father's work. I now live in Tahlequah, Cherokee country, and the state of Oklahoma. I work at Northeastern State University, which was originally founded by the Cherokee Nation as the Cherokee National Female Seminary in the 1850s. I acknowledge the indigenous lands and ancestral caretakers of the places where I dwell, which include the first indigenous peoples of Osage, Kickapoo, and Caddo and following forced removals and migrations as early as the late 18th century, but especially during the 19th century, the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma and the United Ketua Band of Cherokees. I hope that we all acknowledge and really come to know the indigenous peoples and histories of the places and communities that we occupy, navigate, and become a part of. Deneh Doctor History is my current project that I will be discussing with you. It focuses on tracing histories of Dene healers through generations as they fight monsters of colonialism and disease. In her 2018 short film, Yateh Abine, filmmaker, morning star, Angeline, who is a Navajo, Chippewa, Cree, Blackfoot, and Lat- Latinx woman, saw the future as described in a synopsis of her film, a Navajo woman struggles with the legacy left to her after her father passes away from a virus in a post-apocalyptic world. The main poster image of the film shows a Dene woman dressed for survival, wearing a mask of a Dene traditional scarf. This same image has become common in the Navajo Nation since the major outbreaks of the coronavirus in 2020. Native Americans, including Diné, have survived apocalypses before. Widespread disease and unknown scourges that wipe out entire families and communities. But they, including me and my family, remain. We remain. This has become a more familiar, powerful adage since the PBS series We Shall Remain in 2009. What Danae have faced with lost lives and upheavals of pandemics such as COVID-19 are crisis moments for our youth and future generations to carry on our peoplehood and legacy as Angeline symbolizes in the story of Crystal the young Dene woman who becomes the intergenerational link between Dene of the past and future by overcoming the threats of disease and such monsters. I intentionally use the term monster when referring to COVID 19, which is how Dene have viewed disease since time immemorial. This conversation stems from my work with Dene histories of disease and healing from the 19th century to the contemporary COVID-19 era, which intertwines with my own Deneh family and especially my father's lived experiences as a physician and public health professional in American Indian Health Services. I recently launched an open access syllabus, Deneh Doctor History, to educate the public about histories and lived experiences of Deneh facing disease and healing through generations. This project reinforces the purpose of the syllabus to contextualize and historicize the disproportionate susceptibility of Navajos to COVID-19 or DAKOS NTSAIGI nahast ets ADA, what Deneh called this disease since the outbreaks of 2020. This work also adds to the ongoing efforts to address the overarching gross disparities of the COVID-19 pandemic and its impacts. In July 2020, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention posted health equity considerations and racial and ethnic minority groups, which states longstanding systematic health And social inequities have put many people from racial and ethnic minority groups at increased risk of getting sick and dying from COVID-19. They identify social determinants of health, the conditions and the places where people live, learn, work, and play that have historically prevented racial and ethnic minority groups from having fair opportunities for economic, physical, and emotional health. From resources such as the COVID racial data tracker, a collaboration in the U.S. between the COVID tracking project and the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research, and Emory University's COVID-19 health equity interactive dashboard, we can see how COVID-19 is affecting Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and other people of color the most in the United States. According to the APM research lab, for example, Black, Indigenous, and Latino Americans experience highest death tolls from COVID 19 with a death rate of more than 2.7 times white Americans. From data through January 5th, 2021, one in 595 Indigenous Americans has died, or 168.4 deaths per 100,000 from COVID 19. It always strikes me hearing that kind of number, a point something, because there are no half people or point one people. Indigenous Americans now have the highest actual COVID 19 mortality rates nationwide. Of these deaths, most come from my people of the Navajo Nation. Indian Country's COVID 19 syllabus, posted on August 31st, 2020, Uh, announced that 736 deaths were recorded in the Indian health system. Over half, 397 deaths, came from Navajo Nation that also claimed 8,317 cases in August 2020. This is only within the Navajo reservation and does not consider infections and deaths of many Diné who live off the reservation, and that includes many of my own family relatives. As of January twenty fifth, twenty twenty one, the Navajo Department of Health reported on their COVID nineteen webpage that nine hundred seventy seven deaths were confirmed due to COVID nineteen, and there have been twenty seven five hundred seventy three thousand positive cases with. 14,053 recoveries. Keep in mind, this is within a population of about 175,000 people, based on estimates from the last census in 2010, which has most likely increased significantly over the last 10 years. These are only some of the statistics that stand out to people. But for me, These are just, are not just statistics. These are our elders, our relatives. This is us, my family. Essentially, almost all the deaths that I know from COVID-19 come from Dene and Native American communities, and I am connected with diverse communities. I have been teaching my classes on Zoom, like many, And we have been drawing connections between the influenza outbreaks of 1918 and the current COVID-19 pandemic. One of the students in one of my classes made a comment to the effect of, COVID-19 and the pandemic are not real. It's made up. I kept my composure and continued with the lesson, hoping to somehow connect with this student. But it still makes me cringe and replays in my mind. This is very real for me and has been for a long time, as I know it is for many of us. I am not the only one who has told people that they have to go talk and listen to a Diné family and community and see how the coronavirus devastates everyday people. I lost my aunt, Florence, to COVID-19 this past spring in May 2020, and she was living in the border town of Gallup, New Mexico, which makes me wonder if she was ever counted. As a Dene storyteller and memory keeper, Sunny Dooley has explained, and this is, I'm quoting her here, we have a lot of cancers in our community, perhaps because of the uranium. And we have many other health issues that I think makes this virus so viable among us. We have a lot of diabetes because we do not eat well and a lot of heart disease. We have alcoholism. We have high rates of suicide. We have every social ill you can think of. And COVID has made these vulnerabilities more apparent. I look at it as a monster that is feasting on us because we have built the perfect human for it to invade. And that's the end of her quote. My key point is that this monster has a name and did not appear from a vacuum. This vampire preying on and sucking the life of Dene is colonialism, specifically U.S.-based colonialism. The Navajo Nation has been a colony of the United States since the late 19th century. I mean, it's hard to pinpoint exact dates with this, so I'm putting that there. But most Americans do not envision the United States as a colonizer, and they do not understand how the U.S. has colonized the Navajo Nation and has perpetuated different forms of colonialism over generations. Focusing on the health and context of COVID-19, what has led us to this train wreck in slow motion we then start to unpack this complicated history. On my family bookshelf, I remember from a young age noticing my father's copy of the Navajo Nation, an American colony, a report of the United States Commission on Civil Rights printed in 1975. I did not fully understand it at the time, but I have been learning every day connecting the dots of what my family and the Navajo Nation have faced over generations. I learn about their fights and resilience through these struggles. The American Colony Report came from testimonies of the 1973 Commission on Civil Rights Hearings on Navajo Economic Development, Employment, Education, and Health Care. It presented recommendations, including the appropriation of funds for the Indian Health Service to make Navajo healthcare comparable to that of the U.S. in general. This recommendation from nearly 50 years ago has yet to be followed and fulfilled. My students' off-putting comment and those like it have emboldened me more, reminding me how important it is to tell my family's story. I know it is their story not even my own in some ways, because I live in a privileged bubble, even away from my own parents who live in the Navajo Nation. They say that they are like firemen. They know what they signed up for. They must fulfill their call for duty. This is what my mother told me when I asked why my father had to work had to continue to work in the clinic during the first waves of the COVID-19 outbreaks in spring of 2020. My father, a Dene public health professional, is over 70 years old and has been practicing medicine since the late 1970s. He is a family and community medicine physician who retired from the Indian Health Service but has continued family medicine practice with a not-for-profit community health center for Utah, Navajo, and Monument Valley, Navajo Nation, for the past several years. I used to joke that he would work until he died, but now I fear that every day because of COVID-19. The vaccines have certainly helped to uh, relieve those anxieties, one of my favorite photos of my father was from a newspaper clipping that my mom kept in family keepsakes. It's a photo by Paul G. Barker for an article that Linda Silito wrote for the Deseret News in December 1984. It shows my dad, Dr. Phil Smith, holding a Deneh baby boy while checking his vitals with a stethoscope. The article's title, quote, living conditions, cutting lives short, end of quote, could be taken from one of the headlines in today's news as it entails the extreme health access disparities that plague the Navajo Nation, including lack of paved roads, healthcare facilities, and funding. One line describes, quote, people waiting for a relative to come by with a pickup truck to take an ailing grandmother to the doctor or a mother stranded in axle-deep mud while her dehydrated baby dies from diarrhea. The end of quote. The journalist Silito notes how Dr. Smith, my dad, was supervising three clinics while working full-time in the Montezuma Creek Clinic and filling in at the hospital emergency rooms on the reservation ambulances and emergency medical transport and services could not reach many Dene then as they cannot reach many of them today. My father has been featured then as he is featured now in recent articles that trace how Dene seek to overcome these struggles and strengthen our people through health services and care. And I do want to emphasize that I recognize, you know, this history is not frozen in time and we're not making any changes. There's a lot of important changes happening, developments, and so many contributors to that. So it is an acknowledgement of that. But we still are concerned with not enough and not fast enough. Service, care, and healing have been my father's calling and those of his predecessors. His forbearers were hatathle, dene healers, before him. Like many others, my father is my hero. I never imagined that he would be a hero on the front lines against a ravaging pandemic, COVID-19. He told me and my siblings in a Zoom video meeting once from my parents' trailer in Monument Valley. This was about April 2020. He he told us, "I do not do what I do because I'm a hero." I do it because I care. He works with some Danet elders who are over 90 years old, and some of his patients only speak Navajo, his first language, that now only a few medical practitioners in the world know fluently, like him. Fortunately, they have transitioned to using telecommunications for many of the services that my father provides, which has presented its own trials to offer The best care for many, especially while anxieties and fears are higher than ever. As a primary care doctor using telehealth, my dad, um, and this is being quoted from one of the articles featuring him, and this was one from a USU alum helps battle COVID-19, the pulse that's online and was shared in December 2020. Um, It was Uh, quotes pointing out that my dad typically sees about 120 patients per week for more than 10 hours a day. And my mom also confirms this and my dad. The Utah Navajo health system is hundreds of miles away from the major hospitals going in any direction. My dad does does what he can to keep people alive and healthy, but he notices the continual high levels of underlying chronic poor health conditions. Like a hydra, colonialism has multiple heads and takes different forms. Unchecked greed and coveting of land and its resources, lack of responsibility and exposure to radioactive contaminants. Dishonesty and swindling for gain at another's expense, and worst of all, dehumanization and gaslighting, placing the blame on the victims, especially by silencing the truth and controlling historical narratives. Ethel Branch, former Attorney General of the Navajo Nation and one of the founders of the Navajo and Hopi Families COVID 19 Relief Fund, once described how Navajos have been the economic sacrifice to the United States. Navajos are on the front lines set at the altar of the monster of colonialism to pay the price for the hegemony of the United States fueled by market economy and capitalism. I am certainly not the first or the last to say this, you can see, for example, the works of Jennifer Ness Dinettdale, Melanie Yazzie, Nick Estes, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, Dina Gilio-Whitaker, and many others. Gregory Smithers has also pointed out that suffering and deaths are ultimately a result of systematic racism, from historical subjugation to contemporary poverty. And he was quoted saying that Navajos weren't ready for this type of storm. And the reason they weren't ready is because of generation after generation of neglect. The virus isn't waiting for governments to get their medical facilities ready. And that's a quote from him in an article that's um, shared online from a USA Today series. Since time immemorial, our Diné ancestors have faced Naye. Monsters, and they have not only survived but also have thrived as a people in the oral tradition. the hero twins defeated yet it a monster who was covered in metal and applied the monster's broken armor for common purposes, such as cutting knives. The twin heroes did not kill all the monsters, which is why they have continued to plague humanity over time. But generations of Dene heroes have risen and fallen, confronting the monsters of their eras. While media, stories, and cries of my people and community show the rampage of Dukos Nasa Nasa Igí 19, the coronavirus monster, many have asked why the virus is so prevalent in the Navajo Nation. As a Dene historian and descendant of healers, I trace the intergenerational struggles with monsters, especially one that persists and breeds other threats to Navajos, including COVID-19. The monster of colonialism is the ongoing force to dispossess, displace, and destroy Diné and indigenous peoplehood identity and ties to homelands. My father's great grandparents and grandmother survived the long walk when U.S. soldiers poisoned the waters and burned the crops of Dene families and forced by gunpoint as many Dene as they could to walk hundreds of miles to a prison camp of barren land in, 19, in 1864. Hundreds died on the walk and thousands died at Ahuelte. The land of suffering, Fort Sumner, in present day area New Mexico. Thanks to an NEH funded digital compilation of winter letters from the reservation, I was able to see that a Board of Survey report from 1862 even advised the federal government to consider other areas than Bosque Redondo for reasons such as lack of access to supplies and unhealthy mineral matter in the water. Uh, Fort Sumner was on that space of Basque Redondo. Starvation was one of the most serious causes of death on the Long Walk and at Fort Sumner. U.S. General Carleton wrote in 1864 about how Dene and Apache prisoners, quote, must do what the soldiers direct or perish referring specifically to the scarce food rationing and the system of using ration tokens. Despite desperate efforts, crops failed every year in Fort Sumner because of drought, flooding, or pests. The U.S. military compelled the Neh and Apache prisoners to labor on the fort construction with solid buildings while the captive families lived in brush tents over dugout pits. Lethal disease and pestilence was rampant during this awful period. Approximately one out of four Dené prisoners died due to starvation, exposure, and dysentery. Many are buried in unmarked graves. Sorry, I meant dysentery of what many of them died of. Many are buried in unmarked graves and some were left on the trail without proper burial. The assistant surgeon at Fort Sumner, John Brooke, attested that the so-called hospital there was unsuitable in every respect, and it could not hold the sick during their recovery or provide adequate quarantines to prevent the spread of disease. As Jane Hastine carried the stories of her grandparents she recalled in her 70s that many Dene never returned home and probably died of starvation and illness. My father remembers his grandmother telling him as a child about how their people were forced to march to the east, where the sun rises. He makes a point that the long walk was not that long ago, being only a few generations from his time, and even from our own time, today. His maternal grandmother lived to be over 100 years old and was a small child when her family returned to their homeland, and his father was born in the late 19th century, my grandfather. After about four years in the land of suffering, my ancestors returned to their sacred and beloved homelands although the U.S. government, railroads, and white settlers carved out much of the land and often framed Navajos as intruders and ungrateful for what the U.S. supposedly gave them. Jane Hosteen's grandmother would say, quote, that if she had been killed during the conflict, the young girls would not be here today. If the Navajo woman had all been killed during the conflict, there would not be any Navajo people today. The woman's survival was the hope for healing and warding off the two-headed monster of colonialism and disease. My dad said that his grandmother told them stories, especially of her childhood, to learn from. From my dad, who learned from her, I know that our ancestors wake to greet the sun and run toward it as fast as they can. And that's what we know as a people. In the first snow, they roll and bathe in it. All this develops their strength. We learn from a young age about sanagai e hajon, walk in beauty, or live a long life in beauty. You know, there's not really a way to translate what sanagai e hajon really means in a Danish sense. So when I say beauty, beauty is not in a superficial sense of the term hajon means harmony and balance with all things around and within you. And I'm trying the best uh, to translate, interpret this, but you know, so much is lost in translation or it just cannot replace the actual term. Hajo and beauty is in all things. We are connected through beauty and harmony, but that balance is constantly being disrupted and challenged and life is the journey to restore and keep balance. Ceremonies and all kinds of motions and things in life reinforce this. Grow your hair long as the rain and beauty flows through our hair. Hair is life. Water is life. Rocks are life. Respect life. Respect the sacred. It is all one and the same, but different in its own way. These teachings brought the good life on the corn pollen path and road as the Ne have considered it, as our ancestors. And I know it's hard for me talking because I'll use they, we, um, as a historian talking, it's kind of moving between these different pronouns and my positionality to all this. Connections with all things bring this harmony and happiness, health and well-being depended on these teachings and guidance. The walk of life, its path and journey, could then be long and well fulfilled. They say our Danet elders used to live over a hundred years old per person. A hundred two is regarded as a kind of golden age. As I said earlier, my great grandmother Johanna Haskowski lived over a hundred years, uh, at least. Um, that's my father's maternal grandmother. She died with all her teeth. My father would make a point to tell us that, in only a few generations, so much would change. Generations always change, but the impacts of colonialism reap such violent ruptures. They set my family and people on a path of ongoing survival and loss, but most importantly, the ongoing fight to heal and restore Hajo beauty. My father's grandmother tattooed her Indian census number on her wrist so that she could always remember it to receive rations for sustenance from the United States government. Because the rations often included flour and lard, fry bread became a survival food and later a staple. Diabetes and various health disorders have consequentially been epidemics among our people. Almost all of my relatives have diabetes. We have lost several of our precious elders and people after their legs have been amputated due to complications with diabetes and other causes. Within 60 years, when health issues such as non-insulin, dependent diabetes, mellitus, and cancer was rare among Dene, a study in the Journal of Nutrition from 1997 found how widespread diabetes, mellitus, Became employing WHO WHO criteria, we found an age-standardized prevalence of diabetes uh, mellitus (DM) of 22.9% among persons aged 20 years and older. This prevalence is 40% higher than any previous age-standardized estimate for the Navajo, and four times higher than the average standard standardized U.S. estimate. And I'm quoting from this 1997 report here more than 40% of Navajo aged 45 years and older had DM. About one third of those with DM were unaware of it. So that's the end of that quote from that report. Two of my aunts passed away not long after having amputations and trying to carry on with dialysis. One of my aunts actually had said, She just was done with dialysis and wanted to stop. In another study from 1990, it reported that, quote, of 377 lower extremity amputations done from 1978 to 1987, diabetes was involved in 245, 66%. My aunts both passed away in the last 13 years or so, Within this early twenty first century, and um, you know, just thinking of all all these losses that we have, that it just reminds me of this everyday violence and the impacts, and connecting those dots of understanding why this is happening and how it's you know helping us to contextualize COVID nineteen among my my kin. U.S. officials, missionaries, and settlers separated Deneh families to assimilate and educate the children. And I put educate in quotes here, right, of lifting my quote fingers. Um, They sought to educate the children explicitly, planning to sever them from their communities and integrate them in a dominant American society through the 20th century with programs of boarding schools and policies such as Indian relocation and termination. My father and many of my relatives, including grandparents, attended boarding schools where their language, culture, and people have uh, were belittled and suppressed, where they were treated as inferior. My father was dropped off without warning as a five-year-old at a boarding school. This is what has inspired much of my work, including my first book, The Earth Memory Compass, Deneh Landscapes and Education in the 20th Century, and my forthcoming co-authored book, Returning Home, Deneh Creative Works from the Intermountain Indian School, that I'm co-authoring with uh, Drs. Mike Taylor and James Swenson. That study um, and my first book focus on the next schooling experiences, especially in the late 20th century after most Indian federal boarding schools were closed. Sickness spread like wildfire in boarding schools, including during the 1918 pandemic and later influenza outbreaks of the 20th century. There's a chapter in my book, The Earth Memory Compass, for example, that focuses on a flu outbreak in a boarding school in Loop in the 1950s and is quite a traumatic story. So I'm not going to get into depth about that here, but I encourage people to look look into that and also how it relates to these these points of conversation and and this discourse. Navajo councilwoman and public health advocate Annie Dodge-Wanika is said to have been inspired by surviving the flu during the 1918 pandemic while in boarding school. She had helped to care for her sick classmates, many of whom died. She became dedicated to supporting the health and welfare of her people and combating disease everywhere, such as tuberculosis. By 1923, American officials established the Navajo tribal government to basically sign off on land and oil leases to white and non-Navajo businesses and government. Navajo lands, waters, and communities have been poisoned and drained by resource extractions such as uranium and coal mining. Cancer has been epidemic among our people and has taken many of my loved ones, including my grandparents. They drank downstream from an uranium mine, not knowing its risk and danger. When I asked my father where he was born, and this was just recently um, since the outbreaks of the COVID-19 pandemic, he told me that he was born in a hogan where the family used to live by a ridge before they were forced to move after they finally realized that the nearby uranium mining was contaminating their water sources and land. And they were told that um, by different officials. My father was only a child then, so he doesn't have very clear memories of this time. But removals continued after the long walk, and the land was taken away under our people's own feet by poisoning it and all those who continued to live there. My aunt, a cancer survivor, even recently told me, I have uranium in me. Our sacred and precious waters have been diverted to urban centers and populations, while 30 to 40% of people in the Navajo Nation cannot access clean running water. Um, Better yet, you know, when I emphasize the access to running water, uh, it's even harder to have clean, you know, drinkable water. And this is an issue, you know, the Navajo Nation is seeking to address, and there's a lot of efforts and community building and coalitions coming together to address these issues. When the basic rule of stopping COVID-19, though, is to wash your hands, and so many of our people cannot do this so easily, this is why the disease hits our community so hard. In 2020, it was reported that about 15,000 homes in the Navajo Nation did not have electricity. And this is a very big deal. I was on a call, doing, taking some calls for uh, a group providing needed supplies to the Navajo Nation. And I was talking to individuals telling me that they did not have a functional refrigerator. And so it was definitely very hard to be in the lockdowns required to stay at home and uh, curfews and not be able to get out and get needed supplies and to preserve the food that they need. Also consider that the Navajo Nation is a food desert with only 13 grocery stores in the area of about 27,413 square miles. And In comparison, that's about the size of the state of West Virginia. When one in five Navajos have diabetes and a CDC study has found uranium even in Danette babies born in the 21st century, this is why our people are so susceptible to serious illnesses and health complications such as COVID-19. My relatives never signed anything to agree to uranium mining near them. They had no say. They never saw or presented opportunities to access clean water to their homes for decades. And I'm talking, you know, in this historical context for decades after whites in border towns like Gallup had had such um, amenities. One of the worst uranium mill spills of U.S. history happened down the road from my family's home sites in Church Rock, New Mexico in 1979. I didn't even know about it really until the Gold King Mine wastewater spill of 2015 that caused over 3 million gallons of toxic sludge to contaminate our sacred rivers and lifelines, the San Juan River and Colorado River. One of my cousins then said, this is history repeating itself again. This is just like the Church Rock uranium mill spill. And that's where he brought it to my attention about the uranium mill spill down the road from where my dad grew up and my relatives have lived. And I began to learn what my family has been through in these recent decades. Navajos did not ask for these hazards or hardships. We only seek to exist as Diné, as people of Dene Bekeya, Navajo lands our refuge, and home between our sacred mountains and four directions that those sacred mountains align with. But external forces have continued to invalidate our claims to lands, health, and well-being. Not long before and during the COVID-19 pandemic, our sacred landscapes of Bears Ears, Shashjah, and Chaco Canyon came under attack for more resource extraction and exploitation through perpetual efforts to dispossess Navajos, force removal, uh, decimate Diné peoplehood, pollute waters and homelands, and separate Diné families. COVID-19 also threatens the people, killing especially our elders and knowledge bearers, and pitting people against us, as in the case of a terrorist threat in Page, Arizona. In early April of 2020, a local terrorist threatened to shoot Navajos because he believed that all Navajos carried the coronavirus. Rather than stirring more hate, fear, and antagonism, let's finally heal as feel- healers in my family have always hoped and pursued, restoring balance, harmony, and reconciliation. And I want to say this is giving me a lot of hope, even to hear about the propositions and conversation efforts behind having a kind of truth and reconciliation commission that finally addresses the negative and horrific legacies and lived experiences of Indian federal boarding schools on that policy. So that's a part of all this. Stand together with one another for who we all are, the five-fingered beings the healers are warriors. According to Dene ancestral teachings shared by Big Horse, the warrior, um, I was introduced to Big Horse, the warrior, and, and that study in a Dene narrative uh, course at Arizona State University with one of my um, mentors, Laura Tohi. And I remember this part, this section in, in the piece of Big Horse was... Um, an elder who survived the long walk era, um, hid, was able to hide for a great time away from the U.S. military. And his daughter helped to preserve his oral history, his story. And this was a part that I remember a section where he just describes what a warrior means to Diné, to Navajos, that warriors are the ones who care for the sick, feed the hungry, bring wood for the fires, and unite the people. They remind them, you know, we are family. We are united. I thank the healers and warriors, my ancestors, Navajo leaders, my father, and those on the front lines for facing the monsters of today. And I do recognize and want to say that memory keepers are also important Frontline workers, historians, our work matters. We can best support them by all working to heal, which requires recognizing the wounds of the monsters from the past and present colonialism, greed, lust, narcissism, hate, and fear that have harassed us, but have also given us the occasion, the courage to rise and grow stronger by overcoming them. In Facebook posts, which has been a great way of my family connecting and communicating during this time, where there's been so much physical distancing and what we call, you know, social isolating, but in some ways, the technologies we have and the social media to connect, um, my cousins, we've been communicating on Zoom, on Facebook, on these in these different forms. And in some Facebook posts, my Diné cousin, Tyson King, recently shared a powerful message, words that reflect on how I, and this is in his voice, I must want to survive. And that resonated with me because it, I feel like it can apply to we must want to survive Every step matters, even beginning with the will and determination to survive against so many odds to make a difference for generations to come. In one of the most powerful scenes of Angeline's short film that I referred to earlier, Yat'e Apine, the protagonist, Crystal, has flashbacks of her childhood with her father. She tells her father that she wants his medicine— but he explains that she is his medicine, or at least part of it. The ne. this medicine is not some kind of sub- substance or drug. Medicine is both physical and spiritual. It is metaphysical and um, you know, beyond the physical, right? As Perry Robinson, a Deneh traditional consultant explains, everything in the world was first created spiritually before it was created physically. It holds a power that can either help or hurt an individual depending upon how it is used and that a person can form a relationship with that healing power considered a form of kinship known as ke. In the, in, the net bizarre, in Navajo, and I found that quote on. It was connected to the Utah Navajo Health System because Perry Robertson helps consult with um, with the Utah Navajo Health System, and that was under some web pages and pieces he has like Navajo and Western Medicine was its title. So back to the short film uh, by Angeline is Crystal's father taught her that her medicine, power to heal, comes from balance. We can also consider this hajo, which is based on interconnections and intergenerational ties. Since time immemorial, the ne have passed on teachings of sa nagai e hajon, walk in beauty, live to old age in beauty. Healing is an essential part of this never-ending journey and cycle through generations and time as we constantly seek to restore balance and harmony hajo in all things within and around us. One of my aunt Florence's grandchildren and I was ins- just I guess inspired I felt I really wanted to share this um how my aunt Florence when she passed away we could not go to the burial or the funeral. And that was, you know, very difficult as I know many people can relate to this during the pandemic. Um but one of her grandchildren, Alexandra Dick had shared in a public Facebook post as we all were sharing different memories of her and thoughts. She said about my aunt Florence, her grandmother after she passed away due to COVID-19. Quote, one thing that I learned from my grandma was to smile when times are hard because that is what she did. You would never catch my grandma crying. She never showed her pain as well, and she fought to her fullest. Florence, and they called her Nanaba, which means a warrior returning from war. Um, and that's what they called her, you know, since she was young. Like many Dene warriors, Florence lived and served with kindness and good heart for her family and love. I do this work in honor and memory of her life and many of our Dene kin who have passed on and those, you know, who are beyond our kin, our relatives all over, who have passed on due to COVID-19 and other monsters of colonialism and disease that are a part of that. I look forward to any questions and further conversation. Thank you for listening. Thank you for taking this time. Aheheh. That is how we say thank you in Navajo, the net bizarre, our language. Thank
0: you. How tremendous was that? Really? That same energy I take from Farina's work, listening to it, even more there for the Q&A. Enjoy. Farina King, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, it's the pleasure is all ours, I assure you. And um, before we start, I just want to say thank you for this piece that you contributed to this series because I learned so much. Immunal health challenge is a huge part of this generational story that you tell and it's connected to all kinds of things that have nothing to do with pathogens per se at all you use the word dishonesty uh use the word colonialism quite a bit um uh, uh these outcomes you're describing seem to be part of a presidential tapestry that go back to uh hundreds of years uh so uh, is that A fair way to characterize the story you were going to tell? Or do you want to push back on me if I'm wrong? I'm sure you'll let me know.
2: Yes, I I think that's what I'm trying to help people to understand is it's more than what a lot of people think of in terms of health. Health is so much more than people want to describe it maybe as holistic, but I know there's different connotations of that in a Dene perspective and one tied to our ancestral teachings you know health was certainly more than the physical what's identified as biological um, and in this case it's helping anyone whether they're Dene or not you know whoever whoever you are listening to understand that intricate and complicated web of uh, even a matrix that really has shaped the world and and these struggles and challenges that Diné are facing and it's one that it's not only um, and as a as a citizen in Navajo Nation as as a daughter you know a granddaughter of Navajo people and identifying as a Diné woman is something that I'm trying to help people understand it's not our Only struggle, like we're just all of a sudden out of a vacuum in this hardship with the pandemic with COVID-19. But there were all these developments, strings attached and issues that involved actually a lot of people, people who may have never stepped foot in Navajo Nation, right, with some of these uh, corporations, companies, uh, legislators, decision makers in Washington, D.C., and white settlers and movements and and diverse, you know, immigrants and settlers from all over and and how it shapes and affects uh, my family. So helps people to understand on a very, even a personal level, like a intimate close level on um, how these broader dynamics in history and society have affected us. Even things that you might learn in a general history class about the cold war and the arms race, right? And then this is the kind of work I'm helping to connect and show how that changed lives and actually took lives of many Navajo people, the miners who were digging up that uranium and even using it in their homes and created um, intergenerational challenges that we find that uranium in our babies and our people today. And that is a, leading for a catastrophe when there's a uh, disease like COVID-19 that feeds on that kind of, uh, human susceptibility and vulnerability health-wise.
0: That touches on this this question of positionality, right? Uh, That, that, you know, this is your story too. And you bring in a, a lot of yourself into the story that you tell.
2: Well, I, there's been a lot of great examples in history and, um, wonderful historical studies that bring in this kind of genealogical approach, family history. I know uh, Khalil Johnson, Jr., for example, really emphasized that in in one of his articles about um, Black teachers in Navajo Nation. Um, One scholar I was talking to, Elena Roberts, and her book coming out, I've Been Here All the While. Is connected to her family history, descendants of freed people, Chickasaw. Um, so it's not the first time this is done. I I think, though, and especially in in Native American studies, and that's my autoethnographical approach. And for a while, I actually was studying African history in graduate school, and was drawn by the comparisons of of that question of colonialism. You noticed. You know, I did I did refer to that a lot. And I think there there's a balance too of what do these big terms like that they they kind of they become convoluted in some sense. So that's where I really ground myself is through these personal cases and from that positionality that we're mentioning of of where I find myself and my relatives and seeing what they're going through and contextualizing that. And that's um, what drew me to delve into more of these studies of understanding my own family and community that I'm tied to and, and seeking to sustain ties with as well. That it's one thing, as I have mentioned before, when I was little, I just thought, all my family had cancer that that was something that would happen or that we all get diabetes like i grew up with that thought why why do so many of my relatives have cancer and diabetes this is i guess this is just how it is and then when i started to actually focus on the history behind it or these dynamics trying to understand you know the long walk where i heard these stories but what were The real impacts of that. How did it affect food waste, for example, or health in different ways? And, you know, that was in the 1800s, seems so long ago, right? But then I hear about the uranium mill spill of Church Rock. And I didn't really know about that as I had shared until the Gold King Mine waste spill of 2015. So it wasn't until 2015 that, you know, I, I start to hear about. All these precedent historical moments of um, waves of this, an onslaught of attacks on Native American and specifically Dene being and well being. And I'm starting to connect the dots. Like that's how it was for me putting the puzzle pieces together. And it's this talk. I I am very thankful for this opportunity to speak about it because this is a part, actually, of my preliminary stages of weaving together this. As you brought up, you know, there's continuity to this. There's uh, generational focuses here or or ties here. I'm, I'm working on a larger project, a book that really delves into these different areas that are mentioned in the talk and brings together. You know these these pieces of the puzzle to get a broader view of it, and I think people get lost sometimes if they think about these grandiose um ideas of environmental racism or colonialism. but that's important to this tapestry too is interweaving the real lived experiences of my family and my story of uncovering what in many ways has been silenced, even erased in some cases, Mm -hmm. and how to share that with people who, you know, it blows their mind. They just don't even realize this this has gone on. Like most people don't know that the the largest, one of the largest uh, radioactive spills in the United States was not Three Mile Island. It was at Church Rock and, you know, the Church Rock uranium spill, or they don't even know you know, I was reading in Navajo Times just yesterday how a family in Fish Point in Navajo Nation, they are having to set up like a little fort on a hill with rocks and make a little stove there on a hill outside so that their kindergarten or child can access school and they don't have access to Wi-Fi at home because of COVID-19 you know everything's going online, and they're trying to ensure that their children have access to an education. You know what does that have to do with all this it's It's very interconnected right of why why don't they have access to that infrastructure wi fi why are they valuing education so much or a school type of education what what's going on here you know
0: What you're describing to me, I mean, and this touches on something else you talked about, which is, I mean, one of the continuities is the failure of institutions and the failure of policymakers, of legislators, of governance um, to produce the kinds of outcomes that would have made right uh, the COVID nineteen would have would have insulated all of us from some of the worst. Uh, after effects uh, second third and fourth order after effects of the pandemic but especially because the the mortality rates that that you were talking about right uh in the Navajo Nation were were in excess of 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 what we see throughout the population as a whole. Right. So
2: yes, throughout the world. I mean, so we had the highest cases throughout the world for throughout the
0: world. Okay. So, I mean, that's a very alarming, you know, statistic. Uh, is it a colonial story or is it a post-colonial story?
2: I, I think in terms of the language, you know, even colonialism and post-colonialism, I, I attach more to colonialism as this framework that I try to break down on a basic level because mm-hmm. I remember, you know, it's a really loaded term, right? That I think for a lot of Americans especially they hesitate to even use because colonialism is, you know, colonial era when there were the 13 colonies and they had the American Revolution and and you know that, yeah, that's colonialism, sure. yeah. right? I mean, there is so there are so many studies about American imperialism, and those often you know might refer to the Philippines, um, it, even the territories like Guam, and even still, there needs to be more, <laughs> much, you know, always more, because I think everyday citizens, it's like colonialism makes you hesitate and it's a bad thing colonialism is like right you want to free yourself from it so when i introduced that when i was growing up i saw a book in my home called uh navajo uh, colony of the united states and it was published in the 1970s and i mentioned that um i did see and think about how uh the indigenous nations and you know it's the work of um where I do mention in more of my writing, thinking about the influence of scholars like Patty Limerick, who helps to revise, you know, the Frederick Jackson Turner thesis of the frontier thesis and Limerick saying legacy, of conquest here, like, let's call it for what it is conquest. And this is um, the idea is a manifest destiny doctrine of discovery, right? There there's scholars and historians so many who have been pushing against that. But then when we want to talk about um, colonialism and, and post colonialism, I still think there's a lot of debates where, or even, you know, it reminds me of debates of whether to say genocide, ethnic yeah. cleansing, or whatever. Yeah. To me, I don't really care about the terms we use as much as let's get down to the basics of what's happening here. And there is, it, to me, what colonialism means is is there's this process of um, a hegemonic force of some kind that's controlling and dominating another people and sucking the life out of them, like sucking their resources. And it's, you know, dehumanizing in a sense. Right. And that's a part of this erasure of all these lives, all these individual lives that I'm talking about, even why I brought up, you know, that family on the hill trying to. Have an opportunity to education. You know we have these ideals in the United States over and over again in our history and it comes out through debates of you know, the backlash and the responses to the 1776 Commission or, or whatever mm-hmm. it is right teach um, the celebratory stories of freedom, equality, democracy. But then you know we're walking contradictions and that's a part of the colonialism story because there's always this so-called Indian problem. And disease and health are tied into that because you know we we will care and value lives that we want to support in a community such um, but that that's a part of those kind of debates of environmental racism too, of well, you know, we need this uranium or we need this oil or something like that, so this community it they're less You know, they're less than we can move them and let's move them aside. So, in my sense, you know, these systems and mechanics of what I consider colonialism, they're still in play to this day. And how do we deal with that? What do we do? So, post colonialism to me is trying, you know, the post, it's right, it's like an after. And Mm -hmm. I think, in a sense, it is that too of there were these moments, right, of the long walk of that um, seizure of Native American lands. And, you know, what people would identify as that, you know, is a a real injustice against humanity of pushing these families, poisoning them, killing them, my ancestors and people, if they did not move from their lands and and taking that, taking that land. Um, But then, you know, When we're having these debates about whether there could be fracking in Chaco Canyon, or or about Bears Ears National Monument, that's that's not considered colonialism, you know. Where whereas it's still affecting lives and endangering lives, even if it's only a few, you know, does every life really matter? And we hear those kind of phrases and debates today, and I think that's where we haven't really pushed we, we haven't got to that post colonialism you know there's still these dynamics it's different so I am hesitant and I am critical of colonialism because it's like everyone brings to the table a different understanding of these terms and all we're we're really trying to do is is come to the same page you know and and come to an understanding of calling out these um, these issues and challenges that I do have a long history, and how do we really move forward in a positive direction? We do need to understand where we've come from in all this, but now what? You know, And so that's what I really care about in all this, and why I often try to just um, connect to real live stories, and, and I like how you asked in a question you focus on that word thrive, because in all this, there's also a tendency to victimize and to only frame Dene <clears throat> and other Native Americans as victims. I mean, I was called a martyr once in the Newberry library when I was doing research. Uh, an individual saw me and he I told him I was a Native American. And he said, Oh, you're a martyr. And it I know he meant that in an honorary way, like he was sympathizing with um, these dark histories. But then it also was a a little off-putting because I'm still alive, you know, and and we are dynamic, growing people. And it's these stories of survival that are inspiring. And how how my ancestors survived is also incredible. And how Navajo Nation, like right now, I mentioned they had the highest cases of COVID-19 in the world per capita. But we also now have the most efficient vaccine rollout in arguably the world with um, at this point um, in the news just yesterday, we had almost 50% of uh, Navajo Nation. This is within our our reservation. About 25,000 square miles have been vaccinated, at least with the first Mm. dose of the vaccine. And that's at a rate you know, that's higher than an, any other place. So this resilience, the idea is Navajo say, Ta, tawe, ajit ego, means, you know, we will <coughs> carry ourselves. We do this for ourselves when, when we're down and, and struggling. You know, we do carry on and, and, and do what we can to be strong for our posterity.
0: Yeah, I I I'm so with you on the the resistance, you know, to getting too mired in these semantic distinctions. My question about the the colonial post-colonial thing was probably arising from just in terms of you know what kinds of theoretical frameworks you work um you're working within uh because they they do seem to be very syncretic that draw on a couple of you know they draw on your own personal uh heritage and uh uh your birthright as I'm gonna mispronounce this Dine. um oh
2: you did it yeah uh, <laughs> <ew>. <laughs> up, up uh, tone tonal language, so it's like going to yeah
0: um on this personal level um is you had told a story that I thought was really striking in the lecture as well it was just a a brief point you touched on where you were in classrooms, virtual classroom space recently and had a kind of COVID trutherism encounter with a student. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it feels uh, like it would have been not just a pedagogic pedagogically challenging moment, but like an emotionally challenging moment too. So I just wonder how did you process that in the moment and and address it Either like that day or throughout the rest of the semester.
2: Well, I see myself as a constant educator in every space of my life. Actually, as a mother, as a community member, and then as a professor, um, and so many other roles that constantly. Just just when people talk to me and they know, hey, you're you're Navajo, they'll say, and and then you realize how little they know about about these, um, histories and peoples. So I am used to hearing a lot of shocking, (laughs) let's just say a lot of shocking comments towards me. I mean, I I lived in the DC area where where you are Mm -hmm. actually in Maryland and there people would say when I'm native American, what, they're not all extinct. And you know, they were, um, being serious, um so my what I've learned <laughs> from a young age, actually was you just try the best to understand and see people for where they are mm-hmm. that i it's easy to jump and be it take offense or get defensive or judge them, but I try to be. Sympathetic or empathetic in a way of trying to know trying to sense where are they coming from, how mm. does this happen and actually, I appreciate it when people reveal um, in a in a sense, not always, <laughs> but I do appreciate when people reveal these opportunities as I see it as an opportunity of a teaching moment, so in that case. I I had a lesson about the 1918 pandemic of the influenza pandemic. And we are having a conversation and this was during the COVID-19 pandemic, the outbreaks had already happened. So as, as you mentioned before, people are always, you know, we're looking from our lens of trying to understand the past well, it's that delicate balance of getting beyond our own heads and our own lens to understand someone else's shoes, to put our feet in, you know, that phrase, <laughs> to, to walk in someone else's shoes and and to understand a specific historical context and such. But yet we can't ever really get outside our own lens, can we? Like how that's how we're processing and interpreting things is what who we are even if we're trying to pursue that objectivity. So I'm in an area where there are people who have been denying um, the pandemic and for various reasons, and and there's various areas in the United States where this is a case, and it's been um, in many, for many of the net people, this has been very hurtful and a form of violence as well. Even if these people, like I, I, I truly believe my student did not mean to offend; that he did not uh, say that out of like some kind of attack.
0: Right, um, it wasn't malicious. It was yeah. He he, he was sharing who he was. And, yeah, uh, right, exactly.
2: Uh, so that's also the point. But I, I had a, uh, I have a friend who, and it's through social media. You know, we've stayed connected and really seen processing, I mean, that will be so fascinating of how, and as you said, we're, we have to think about history of the future, right? Of how, how we're going to do history of the future. And it's like these Facebook posts and tweets will be important, are important historical material in a sense. So, um, I have a friend on Facebook who posted about how she was in a store and there was a little of a confrontation between, um, uh, you know, over mass or something and an individual in the store, another customer had shouted that this was a fake. It's all a ruse, um, the pandemic and COVID-19 and she became very defensive and, uh, she went outside and cried, just was bawling. And she's Dene, a Dene woman. And she had recently lost her sister to the disease I also have another friend. He lost his father. So among many, Dene, we all have a relative we've lost. And it's so painful You to know, think about how we've been struggling and fighting to survive and thrive with our languages, our culture. I mean, my first book was about Navajo boarding school experiences. And it stemmed from my dad's story of being dropped off when he was five years old without warning in a Indian federal boarding school and punished for speaking Navajo. And that was the only language he knew and, and place in a school where he doesn't hear, I love you for months at a time and Mm -hmm. having his culture, his identity belittled. Yeah. That. Yeah. So it's um, a lot of painful aspects here. So certainly it was triggering for me to hear that, but at the same time, I I paused and I I focused on ways how can I take this as a moment to teach, and that's where you know I I share that it's important to understand these different perspectives and and my sharing of of stories, bringing up my family and how Navajo Nation and and different populations are also. Disproportionately affected, and and it is wrapped up in these issues that I I teach and themes that I teach over and over again about race, ethnicity, gender, class, these dynamics that have shaped, you know, Mm -hmm. um, these histories. Something else, too, that you said earlier, you know, talking about terms that I want to touch upon because I think it's also important in all of this is not only am I trying to Help connect with people through uh, stories and helping them, you know, to put a face that these just aren't, they're not numbers. They're not some statistic. And this isn't some, I think history can feel really distant for students. So even with my students, I'm trying to help them connect. Like when I'm talking about the 1918 pandemic, it's, really amazing for, to see students learn and draw these connections of, of why these histories matter. But, um, another part of my work too, and, and your question about terms reminded me that I'm trying as well to introduce Dene terms, right? Like colonialism is not a Dene term, right? Like it's an, it's an English term or, or shaped by these other dynamics of English. So I'm also trying to learn and understand um the terms that even my own my father and my aunties and my grandparents use because it's like a whole different it well, is a whole different
0: yeah, language i'm I'm right. glad you raised that because the one of the the key concepts that you interspersed throughout the talk is is monster right
1: so when I was
2: mentioning a two headed monster, it was actually more like a hydra of how disease is tied to colonialism. That that was the main aspect Right, bringing okay. up a multi-headed monster is that sickness, like disease and and it's um, rampant, this um, unabating impact of disease and health disparities is tied to colonialism and, and the related like land dispossession, as you brought up.
0: What I always want to know is like, what am I not thinking to ask that I should be asking? And what are the questions that like you, you want your students to be asking that they don't
2: Wow. I mean, I think (laughs) um, there can be a lot of questions that I I think people don't ask. I think um, I I mentioned before that a lot of the questions are the basic of why is this affecting Navajos so much? And when you have to ask that question, then it means... You haven't been tracing or following or really understanding the United States relationship with any Native American people, actually, um, and how complicated and, and the conquest and, and colonialism it is. So often, I want people to ask those questions of how how are Navajos perceiving and, and experiencing you know this this pandemic and what you know? What are their hopes for for their families and people? I want them to also see things not in past tense. And I think in history, we're pushed to do that, you know, because we are centered on the past and focusing on that. And I think actually, for a lot of historians, more than I, I don't know, you know, the exact quantity or something, but from my personal experience and. The way that I've been treated even as a historian, and this comes out in in my book of where um, historians get a lot of criticism from scholars of Native American and indigenous studies to be honest, and why is because uh there's still this idea that historians only want to look at documented sources from Uh, penned or authored by white, white Europeans, the colonizer. And they're not um, seeking those indigenous and Native American epistemologies and approaches to really understand and hear and listen to Native American and Native American voices, including Diné. And that's why that point about the story of, of Monster, an oral tradition, you'd call it, or even origin stories matter in an academic sense they can just be categorized as that's a myth that's the legend but it's so integral and important in in a sense is is history of our people and how to you know make that connection and and see that what has been understood as history you know, goes into all these areas that might be called interdisciplinary, but really, to Diné, you know, those kind of categorizations don't matter. I mean, just uh, the other day or yesterday, I was reading our Navajo Nation president, Jonathan Nez. He, when he was talking about the vaccine rollout, he said, we have survived smallpox tuberculosis and the hanta virus we will get through this and he also has openly and many Diné who are a part of this um ethel branch uh the um who was a started a major navajo and hopi covid19 relief fund and fundraiser and so many others the um Director of the Epidemiology Center, who's um, Anton Nez. She also has Nez, but not a relation of, of the president. There's all this tremendous work. In, and in all their work, I, I do hear here and there on the videos and references constantly to this monster over and over again. But what it's evoking and what we need to understand when we hear that is, like you said, look beyond just um, a one-sided if if you're an English speaker, you might be thinking, Yeah, I know what a monster is, the boogeyman, it's under the bed. But in Dene, it's evoking this sense of the Nayeh and the stories of the twin heroes and how they overcome those monsters for a better society. And yet they left some monsters for us to grow and become stronger. Like it's tied to this this important central story of what it means to be Dene. And so all this also brings up a lot of, um, conversations about identity and peoplehood, um, even the dynamics of what we consider nationhood and, and how that was affected by these convergences and influences of different peoples and cultures. So I think I I want people to ask questions that are recognizing and trying to understand and listen to a Dene perspective and voice. And you have to do some background research to do that. You know, it's kind of like having that student who asked you a question that was on the syllabus, you know, that was there. (laughs) You're like, you can do some background first before you ask me. You know, I've had Uh, at those instances of a student kind of wanting you to do the work for them. And I think when people get into Dene studies or or listen to a conversation, do some background work too. There's been a lot of good work. Jennifer Nes, Danette Dale, uh, reclaiming Dene history. Um, Now, you know, really great scholars in the the works that they have come in. A friend, Neil Dodge, um, Melanie Yazzie, so many, um, great, great scholarship out there, Lloyd Lee, their books. So, do so there are,
0: up. there are resources yes, beyond, yes. beyond this, this, this chat we're having you and I right oh, now yes, for so people many. to. to my
2: website now, Dene, Dene, Dr. History, where I call it a syllabus and it has so many references because there are these sources and so many um, multimedia materials. So look at those, start to learn and understand of people to get beyond your own language. So we can be multilingual. I think that's the biggest thing too, is people think um, there's some people who think it has to all be one language, but it's that beauty of the diversity of being multilingual and being mm-hmm. able to think on different levels, how in that language, there's archives and theories, right, that just cannot be translated, like hajo, of what I bring up in the paper, you can't translate hajo. People call hajo beauty, but it is hajo, you know, of that harmony, balance, I can try to put all these words on it. But that's a, a concept that is central to a dene trying to come to being and one that we want our our children and and future generations to seek is that kind of happiness in it. But I can't, you know, again, it has to be a joke. And I don't want to discourage, rather, I want to encourage, you know, dialogue of keep learning, talk to each other, and be gracious and patient. I think a lot of times people want snaps. Done, fix it, put a cap on it. But it's a lot about rela- relationship building. And if anyone knows about healthy relationships, it's the long haul, right? It's <laughs> sustaining and working at it and balancing that. Um, So that's what I think too, with when asking questions or knowing what kind of questions to ask. I've had to learn the right questions to ask. Actually, this reminded me of a very um, strong story for me is that when I was little, I was frustrated that my dad didn't teach me how to speak Navajo. He didn't. And my sister and I would say, Oh, it would have been so cool if we could speak to each other in Navajo like a code. And actually, two of my uncles were Navajo code talkers. And um, we would say that and I finally confronted my father about it one time. And I said, Why didn't you teach us how to speak Navajo? My mother didn't speak does not speak Navajo. And she's of white English, you know, settler descent. And my but my dad said, You never asked me. and. That just has really stuck with me because I keep thinking of, and this keeps happening, I'm sure a lot of historians, I hope, can relate to this, or, or they do, is that you You later learn the kind of questions you wished you could ask or you wish you could have asked someone. You know, when you study historical figures or an event, it will dawn on you about, wow, I should have asked this. Oh, yeah. You know, why, yeah. I wish I could. Have, why didn't anybody ask them that? Why didn't anybody uh, find out that? And so it's a part of the journey of learning the kinds of questions to ask. And Mm -hmm. I didn't know, for example, when I brought up the um, church rock uranium mill spill, I didn't even know to ask about that to my family because those are the things they're not just going to talk about at the dinner table, right? Oh, that terrible thing. I have uranium in me. These are not, these are actually a lot of very sensitive, taboo memories and this is another part of understanding that culture and language and being, too, is um, our people, our ancestors were taught not to dwell on negativity. A part mm-hmm. of healing is, you know, to not dwell on it. Right. And I think that's relatable in a lot of cultures, even if people say, oh, you need to talk about it, different things like that. You have to understand. And in the ancestral teachings, it was. You don't just dwell on that. A part of surviving is focus on the positive move forward So
0: the mental health what we would today call mental health. Yeah. Aspect to it. Or relate is, to it. Um, yeah, was, was was there. Well, I um I'm in awe of this work and uh I want to thank you for sharing it with not just me, but the community and uh, the series, all our listeners, the organization. Thank you. Uh, I get it. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Farina King. And that's a wrap. I want to thank Dr. Farina King again for a really wonderful piece of work and invite you to join us again next time when we begin the first of two episodes on Uh, the influenza pandemic of 1918, the very notorious influenza epidemic of 1918. Uh, First up is Professor Christian Anderson, an associate professor of higher ed at the University of South Carolina. Uh, And he'll be walking us through higher education and the influenza pandemic of 1918. We'll catch you then.